Welcome to the Composer Studio Podcast. On the Composer Studio, we listen to the music of living composers. We talk to them about their writing process, and we learn about the world of music that they live and work in. I'm Tarek Iridella, and today our guest is composer Samuel Zeman. Dr. Zeman is a longtime New York-based professor of music theory and analysis at the Juilliard School, is acknowledged as one of the leading Mexican composers on the international scene today. Dr. Zeman is also a professor of composition and music theory at the Blair School of Music of Vanderbilt University in Nashville. His music is characterized by intense and vigorous rhythmic energy, expressive lyricism, and the frequent use of near-jazzy imitative counterpoint. His musical language often displays both his Mexican and his Jewish heritage. Dr. Zeman, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you so much for inviting me. Absolutely. Um, So now you're teaching, in in addition to Juilliard, you're also teaching in Nashville, Tennessee as well, at Vanderbilt. Yes. So when we were working together, I don't think that you were in Vanderbilt at the time. That was around 1999. No, no, no. This is a very recent development. I've been at Juilliard for 33 years. I've lived in New York for longer than that. So New York has been my home. I never even contemplated the possibility of being anywhere else. But it's a long story, which I won't get into. But my wife was was offered the chairmanship of the Department of Physiology here at Vanderbilt. And And so now I divide my time. I spend one semester teaching at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, and one semester teaching at Julia. Ah, okay. And so I'm curious, what do you see, or do you see any differences between, uh, you know, Nashville and a city like New York? And what are those differences? Oh, absolutely, yes. Well, Nashville is a very nice city. It's very vibrant. There's a lot of activity, and it's it's an up-and-coming city. There's a lot going on. There are several Mm -hmm. different universities. It has its own culture, as you know, of course, country music and the music scene in terms of the clubs and everything else, aside from the pandemic. It's a very nice place. Nice. But That's honestly, awesome. not, nothing compares to New York. New York City is just the most exciting place you can imagine, or at least used to be before the pandemic. You've been writing a lot of music and, you know, I'm looking through your whole library of, of compositions that you've been working on and that you've written in it. And a lot of them I see since we've, since, you know, while I was studying with you, you know, a couple of pieces we're going to go over today and, and we'll dive into them a little bit deeper. But Dulcinea is the first piece I wanted to go ahead and listen to. You know, the whole story behind it and the story behind the premiere really fascinated me. Um, it, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about the festival down in Mexico and, and what it was all about and what it meant for you. There is a magical city in Mexico called Guanajuato. As, of course, you know, I'm originally from Mexico. No? Mexican composers lived in New York for many, many years. And uh, there's this magical place called Guanajuato. In fact, Mexico has a a number of small cities and little towns and villages, especially in the center of the country, but also in other places, that are generally considered magical because they're just uh, adorable places. You go and you see the Spanish colonial architecture, cobblestone streets and the church and the central square, and the handicrafts and the whole atmosphere and the, and the people, the Mexican cultural traditions and the food. These are amazing, absolutely amazing places. And Guanajuato is a, 
I think it's a UNESCO site. It's just a treasure of a city. It's absolutely beautiful. And for many, many years, they have held an international festival, a top international festival that brings together ensembles and groups, performing groups and so on from all over the country. I'm talking about top, some of the top uh, groups. It started out as a festival, for, particularly for theater, and it's called Festival Cervantino because the, the motif is usually associated with Cervantes, the author of Don Quixote. But then the festival expanded and it started to include not only theater representations, but also dance and music and, and lectures and museums and all kinds of things. So it's been going on for decades, and, uh, and it is financed by partly by public money and partly partly by private money, and it's one of the most, so one of the highlights of the cultural calendar in Mexico, and I venture to say in the world at large. So it's, and it turns out when when I had this piece performed there, the motif was it's always Cervantes is always looming because uh, it's considered the Cervantes' capital of the Americas. Of course, Cervantes was a Spanish author from Spain, but the Spanish-speaking world, of course, reaches, it encompasses all of Latin America. And Mexico is the largest speaking, Spanish-speaking country in the world. And the, and the influence of Cervantes is felt very strongly in Mexico. And Guanajuato is one of the most special places for that. It has museums about Cervantes. It has uh, sculptures about Cervantes. And there's one particular museum that's called iconographic museum of Cervantes. And that year we were celebrating an anniversary of Cervantes' birth. I don't want to say it wrong. I'm sure I put it down on the notes. Was it the 500th anniversary? No. It was oh. his 400th, 400th anniversary of his Thank death. You. What would I do without you? You have the information. <laughs> so um, we were celebrating that anniversary. And so I was commissioned to write a piece inspired by Cervantes because that was the motif of the whole festival. And uh, I was commissioned by a dear friend of mine, a flutist by the name of Marisa Canales, for whom I've written a lot of flute music. And this was a piece for flute, cello, and piano. And it has four movements, and each movement is a musical musical portrait of a character in Cervantes' timeless novel. Uh, and Dulcinea is... Uh, is the slow movement, so to speak, of the of the piece, of the of the work. Dulcinea was, according to the story, was Don Quixote's idealized wife, or be, not wife, perhaps, but beloved. She was supposed to be this beautiful, ideal woman for whom he had this ideal, fantastic love. The only problem was that Dulcinea didn't really exist because Don Quixote kept imagining things. So he imagined Dulcinea being this beautiful woman. And so on. So uh, that inspired me to write a piece that was a kind of expression, a musical expression of an idealized love for an idealized woman. And I, I transmuted that in a way uh, that it would be my own uh, way of expressing my love for my real life wife. And uh, the middle part of the piece is a little bit stormy because, as ideal things are, there are always issues that can happen. And in the case of Don Quixote, the issue is that she wasn't really real after all, you see. But And it had to be some contrast and so on. But the piece, I wanted to write a piece that would be as accessible, as tonal, as pure as I could possibly make it. And that, nice. that's, that's the idea of this piece. Well, we're going to go ahead and listen to it now. Dulcinea, this is the third movement 
And the performers are Giorgio Consolate Flute, Changwon Piano, and Yifei Li Cello.
That was Dulcinea, the third movement from the Suite de la Mancha for flute, cello, and piano by composer Samuel Zeman. Dr. Zeman, you had touched on the Spanish language and Mexico being the largest Spanish-speaking country, and I was curious, how much of a role and what kind of a role does your heritage play in your music? I know you're, you're Jewish and Mexican. And it's an interesting combination. And I'm wondering how much of each do you pull into your music? The answer is very much, very much. My, my background and my history both play a big role in, in, how, in who I am as a person, who I am as an artist, and certainly who I am as a composer. That doesn't mean that my music is necessarily consciously all the time um, referred to my Jewishness or to my Mexicanness, if you will but it's just an integral part of myself. So it plays an important role. I've written some pieces that are overtly, deliberately Mexican. They even, we even have it in the title. And my Jewish heritage is very much there. I mean, I, 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 didn't grow up, I didn't grow up in a religious family, and I'm not a religious person, but um, my connection to the Jewish community and my Jewish ancestry was always very clear. And I did go to synagogue when I was growing up, my father would take me to the synagogue and I had my bar mitzvah when I was 13 and things like that. So I did grow, grow up listening to some Jewish liturgical music at the synagogue, which is, a, by the way, a very, very expressive kind of music. It expresses very profound and cultural and, and psychological, emotional issues. And as you say, I guess it's interesting how the two of these combine because mm -hmm. there's these traditional Latin American rhythms that you hear, and Mexican in particular, which were, of course, always in the air as I was growing up, plus the, plus the Jewish dimension, plus many other influences. I mean, I was always aware always of, of uh, classical music in general, the European tradition, and a strong influence from the United States, of course, pop music from the from the States, everything from the Beatles to anything else you want to mention, mm -hmm. and certainly jazz. Jazz is also important. So one of my obsessions is rhythm, and when you, you, you combine this whole mishmash of things, you never know what you can get. <laughs> but the, the, yes, the answer to your question is very much all of this plays a role. So I wanted to move on to your next piece, and we can start talking about that a little bit. It's your piano trio, and the trio itself is titled Search, and we're going to listen to the first movement in a few moments, but I did have a few questions about the piece. There's a lot of rich um, content that, that went into this piece, a lot of things that I believe you thought about and that were on your mind when you were writing this piece. But first, the, the first thing that struck me when I was reading about it was that it's your third piano trio. And so that struck me as like, well, you write a lot of piano trios. Yes. And I'm thinking to myself, what is it that draws you to this instrumentation? Is it something special about it that you like? Wouldn't it be wonderful if I told you that I'm attracted to the piano trio for all kinds of metaphysical reasons or, <laughs> or, or, or I have a, an affinity for this particular kind of ensemble and so on? The truth is that there's a lot of serendipity in this. It's just the way things happen. Uh, the first piano trio that I wrote, I wrote it as a, as a Juilliard student. I was a student at Juilliard at the time. And this was not a commission or anything like that. It was, I, I was a student. And as you know, as a student, you, you come up with projects. You see, you, you study with your teacher and the teacher suggests, why don't you write a piece like this or a piece like that? I don't even remember exactly why I wrote a piano trio while I was a student at Juilliard, but it was one of my most uh, meaningful projects. 
And I really don't remember why or how I came up with that, but it was probably one of my most um, solid pieces that I wrote while I was a student. And I wrote it for a number of classmates of mine. And that was my first piano tree. It was played at one of the Julia Composer's recitals. So that was that. That's number one. And then I got a commission to write a second piano trio from a, from a violinist I knew in Mexico. He happened to have a piano trio, and he wanted to commission a piece for that ensemble. So sure, of course. And by the way, once I wrote the first piano trio, I loved it. As a combination of instruments, it's incredibly powerful. Everybody talks about what, what a great experience it is, for example, to write a string quartet or to write a wind quintet. I have written, for example, also, I wrote a piece for, for the so-called Pierrot Ensemble, which is a very special kind of quintet. And the, but a piano trio is a wonderful, wonderful combination. You have the power, the percussive power of the piano and this incredibly expressive as well as percussive power of the two strings, the violin and the cello. And the three of them together make for a very, uh, very powerful combination, I find, which can be, it can range from being very, very tender and soft to, to being incredibly even violent and aggressive. Mm. You can have all of that. So I loved working on that first piano trio, and I've always been in love with Schubert's piano trios. I actually wanted to mention Schubert's name. I think there's a little bit of Schubert in that Dulcinea piece which was heard. There's something about how he handles his trios. Schubert wrote, at least as far as I know, two piano trios that are absolutely exquisite. And they have these beautiful cello solos and these beautiful violin solos, and then the piano provides all this richness of articulation and everything else. So anyway, the second piano trio came about as a commission from this violinist in Mexico, so I wrote that. It was played, it was performed, and a number of years later, eh, I got yet another commission. So it wasn't really my choice. It came as a commission. And this commission came, as I pro- you probably saw in the, in the program notes, it came from, from an institution called TCU, Texas Christian University, in I think it's in Fort Worth, and they happened to have a faculty piano trio. That means paid up of faculty members at the music school at TCU. One of whom I knew very well, the cellist. Um, Jesus Castro Balbi is his name. And uh, he proposed that, the, the, you see, the trio was planning to do a debut recital at Wild Hall of Carnegie Hall in New York City. And he proposed to the institution that they commissioned me to write for that ensemble. And uh, if, if somebody asks me to write a fourth piano trio or a fifth or a sixth, I'll be delighted to do it. So really, <laughs> I really love that combination. Well, we're going to go ahead and listen to this piece now. This is from your piece called Search for Piano Trio. And this is the first movement. The piece is performed by Brendan Zack on violin, Chang Wang on piano, and Han Lee on cello. Thank you. 
That was the first movement from the piano trio Search by composer Samuel Zeman, performed by Brendan Zach, violin, Chang Wang, piano, and Han Lee, cello. What a wonderful piece. Just Thank an you. incredible performance, too. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think one of the greatest gifts for a composer is to get good performances, to get players who really play your music with a passion, with understanding, with, with complete commitment. And I certainly got that. In the, the two pieces we've listened to, I, I certainly got that. And um, because we, see, we, we got together, we had several coaching sessions and so on, and they were so dedicated. And of course, technically and musically, they, they're incredibly capable. So I was delighted with this performance. 
In your program notes for this piece, you wrote that both the title, search, and the character of the music reflected your preoccupation with events that were taking place in society and around the world at the time. And I was wondering what those events were that you were speaking of. This piece was completed in 2005, so it was shortly after the invasion of Iraq, when the U.S. invaded Iraq and started that war, which itself was a consequence of the attacks of September 11. So I'm not saying that this piece is directly about the attacks of September 11, but the, the, the climate, what, what you perceive, what I perceived at that time, just reading the paper every, every day, waking up in the morning, was just violence. It was this climate of violence. You see that countries invade other countries and they kill people by the thousands in the name of a system, in, in the name of defending your, your country, in the name of nationalism, in the name of all kinds of things. It was bewildering. It was just uh, shocking, really shocking. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the second moment, which is not included here, um, is, a, is a kind of elegy. It's just a, it's a, a, a profound lament, which, by the way, has very strong Jewish influences. Uh, and it's, it's interesting that this piece is only in two movements. You would expect, perhaps, for it to have three movements. But the second movement is such, a, such a, an introspective lament, an elegy of what was going on, that I felt the piece had to end there. I couldn't do a mm-hmm. third one. Sort of like the way Mahler ended the ninth with yes. the slowest movement. This first movement we just listened to uh, is in many many ways representative of, of a lot of my music, or at least my priorities as a composer. Uh, I try to have a lot of rhythmic vitality. I'm very attracted to powerful counterpoint, to syncopations. And this piece, you see, is, is very different from Dulcinea because this is, this is more dissonant and it's a little more aggressive and in many ways, I suppose, more in, intense. It has many more layers to it. Um, and um, those are some of the things I, I, I like to do in my music. And so I'm, I'm, this is a piece I, I really wanted to share with your audience. I wanted to ask you about current projects. What is it that you're working on now? It's been a very strange year, but uh, far, paradoxically, I've been very, very busy writing a lot of music. First, um, when the pandemic started, I was working on a viola sonata, sonata for viola and piano. I had just finished a piece for voice and for, for chorus and piano for an ensemble in, in the country of Colombia. And then I was working on this peaceful uh, sonata. I have a whole series of sonatas in the course of my creative life. I've written a violin sonata, a cello sonata, a, a flute sonata, a, all, all kinds of pieces like that. So this, this would add to the collection, a viola sonata. And the viola is very special. So that was one of the pieces, which I haven't finished, by the way. I had to put it aside because other projects came my way. The most the biggest project I've been involved with is a cantata, which is practically an opera. It's a, a, a dramatic cantata, we call it. And it's an, pretty, an, pretty much an epic piece because it's for, for vocal soloists, chorus, big orchestra, and even dancers and, and screen and, and a stage and so on. And this cantata is about 
uh, an Aztec emperor, the, I think he was the next to last Aztec emperor. And the reason they commissioned me to write this piece is because we're coming to the 500th anniversary of the conquest of Mexico by the Spaniards. Mexico was conquered by the Spaniards in 1521, exactly 500 years ago. And uh, I think everybody knows the basic story that the Europeans came, they had more firepower, but what they found in the territory that now is Mexico, they found an incredibly developed culture of many different uh, groups, many different peoples, let's say, and the dominant people were the Aztecs right in the Central Valley of Mexico. And ultimately, the Spaniards prevailed, and this is why Mexico is now a Spanish-speaking country. But what happened was this tremendous clash of cultures, and Mexicans are the descendants of the mixture of the two cultures. And uh, what was interesting, and this is what's directly directed to the cantata, there was only one Aztec emperor who actually had a victory, a military victory against the Spaniards. And for some reason, he hasn't been celebrated enough. So there's this area in Mexico City where this particular emperor, his name is Cuitlahuac. That's where he was born. And he actually defeated the Spaniards militarily. And uh, so in this particular place, this particular part of the city, they commissioned me to write this cantata, which celebrates this military triumph and the whole meaning of the cultural identity of Mexicans in the face of the conquest of the Spaniards. And so I've been really, really busy writing this piece, as you can imagine. We have a baritone and we have a soprano and we have duets and we have uh, choral numbers. So I've been writing number by number by number. It's, just, it's a, in a way a dream come true because I'm practically writing an opera, which I had never written before, a full-fledged opera. And so far, I mean, I'm coming to the end of the composition, but I haven't done the orchestration yet. So this is one of my main projects. And the other project, which is the one I'm working on right now, because again, I put the cantata aside for a moment because now I have more, more pressure, more deadline pressure to finish this other piece, which is a piano concerto that I'm going, I'm writing for a, for a pianist who is going to, once the pandemic is over, he will premiere with the National Symphony in Mexico City. And this is my second piano concerto. The first I wrote before I even met you. I wrote it in 1988. So now in 2021, I'm writing my second piano concerto. Wow, you've got a full plate of you stuff bet. happening here. It's, yes. it's been it's really exciting. Yes. It's really exciting. Well, I can't wait to hear the music that's coming out uh, from you this year. Is there going to, are there going to be any premieres? Do you know if there are going to be any recordings? Absolutely, of course, yes. I don't, at this point, I'm not exactly sure when. Most likely, both of these pieces will be played in 2022, probably, or at the end, sometime towards the end of 2021. The premiere dates were, have been postponed, which in a way worked to my advantage because it gave me a little more time to, to work on the pieces. Mm-hmm. So chances are it will be towards the end of the year or the beginning of next year. Well, the last piece we're going to listen to is Labyrinthos. Yes. Um, is this the concerto for orchestra? Yes. Excellent. Excellent. Exactly. So, um, Tres Labyrinthos Concertantes. I know, I, you know, I, I wanted you to give us a little bit of a background about the piece, um, what a concerto for orchestra is as compared to, let's just say, a piano concerto, for instance. And then we'll go ahead and listen to it. Sure. 
in the orchestral realm, this is far and away my most ambitious piece. It's for a big orchestra. It's in three movements. And it has this ingenious title, Tres Laberintos Concertantes, which would translate into English as uh, Three Labyrinths, con Concertant Labyrinths, so to speak. It's just that we just wanted to have a catchy title, really, uh, but it is a concerto for orchestra. The main source of inspiration for this piece is Bartok's Concerto for Orchestra, which is a piece I've always loved. I'm not trying to imitate it. I'm not trying to even do anything remotely like what Bartok did, although Bartok is a composer I admire very much, and Bartok is a composer who has influenced me. But I, I, I didn't model my, my Concerto for Orchestra after Bartok. I just wanted to write a piece that would showcase the orchestra. Uh, that's what a concerto for orchestra is. It's a piece that you don't call it a symphony, you call it a concerto because you want it to be virtuosic. You want it to show off the technical, expressive, and coloristic possibilities of the orchestra as an instrument, both on the whole and in the individual components. So you try to, to, to highlight groups of instruments, the, the, the strings, for example, or the woodwinds or the percussion or the brass at different times, or the orchestra as a whole with passages that are, I, I tried to write passages that would be, that would show the orchestra in its brilliance, the orchestra having this power of, of expressivity, of colors, etc., of, of rhythmic vitality, and so on. The, the way that this piece came about, um, it was written a little over 10 years ago, in 2010. What happened was that 2010 was an important year in Mexico because uh, for, for two reasons. Mexico started its war of independence from Spain in 1810. So 2010 was the 200th anniversary of the beginning of the independence, the war of independence. And then in 1910, exactly 100 years later, Mexico had a major revolution, which we call the Mexican Revolution. Unlike the, the American Revolution is the war of independence of the U.S., but in Mexico, the term revolution refers to, not to the war of independence, but a revolution against the established order at the time. And Mexico was already independent in 1910, but there was a major revolution that everybody has heard about with Pancho Villa and Emiliano Zapata and all these characters. That was in 1910. That was the, the revolution that, uh, that changed the balance of power in Mexico. Tried, they, they, they tried to pay more attention to, to the poor, and to achieve a little more social justice. Whether it happened or not is something I, I don't want to get into or I shouldn't get into right now from a political point of view. So 2010 was always announced as the year of the bicentennial because we were celebrating two things, both the, the War of Independence and the Mexican Revolution 100 years later. And so there was a tremendous flurry of cultural activities. There was a budget to commemorate both those events and so I was very lucky that they commissioned me to write a major orchestra piece uh, about these two events. So, and again, the piece is not about the revolution or, or about the war of independence, but it has, I think it does have some uh, allusions to Mexico a little bit, something about the rhythm, something about the intensity of the piece. But I took it as a, as a good excuse to write a big, brilliant, ambitious, long piece for orchestra. This is the premiere of the piece. Uh, the world premiere of the piece, it was performed by an orchestra called the Orquesta Sinfonica de Minería, which would translate as the Minería Symphony Orchestra, where Minería has to do with mining, 
there is a particularly beautiful colonial palace in downtown Mexico City um, that's called Palacio de Minería. And it has to do with the, with the practice of mining. Mexico has always been an important mining country. It, had, it has uh, silver mines and, and gold mines and so on. So there's a sort of a, a department for, for mines. And this orchestra was founded by a group of engineers. And so they gave it this name. That's why the orchestra is called Mineria. It's a, it's a very important orchestra that always plays in the summer. The conductor is Carlos Miguel Prieto, who's the, the music director of that orchestra, as well as, as of the National Symphony. And this was a live performance that took place in Mexico City in 2010. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's been such an honor and a privilege to have you on. It's, it was my honor and my privilege, Tariq, first of all, to, to have this re-encounter with you. And I'm very grateful to you for having invited me. We're going to go ahead and close the show out now with Labyrinthos Concerto for Orchestra by composer Samuel Zeman.
You have been listening to the music of composer Samuel Zeman on the Composer Studio. If you've enjoyed Dr. Seaman's music, you can find more of it at www.presser.com forward slash Samuel Zeman. That's spelled Z-Y-M-A-N. Don't forget to check out our blog at composerstudio.net, where you can find notes, links, and playlists to our shows this season. We want to hear from you. Have you discovered new music that moves you? Share it with us. Are you a composer who would like to be featured on the show? Let us know. Contact us via our website, Instagram, or our Facebook page. And as always, thanks to our patrons for making the Composer's Studio possible. If you want to become a patron, just click the Become a Patron button on our website, or look for us on Patreon. Composer Carlos Chavez once said to his friend and fellow composer, European musicians are the worst kind. Conductors, pianists, violinists, singers, and so on are prima donna-minded people. They are very important to themselves. We must change this situation, Aaron. <laughs>